Hi, I'm Moshe Zeldman. Welcome to Schmoozen. We live in times of unprecedented change and confusion. The rise of cancel culture, the promises and the threats of artificial intelligence, identity politics, a society where more people are more digitally connected but are feeling lonelier than ever, and a world that seems to be edging towards World War III. I believe that Judaism can shed light on all of these issues. Schmoozing is more than a podcast. It's a platform for a community of thoughtful voices on these important topics. Let's explore together how Judaism can provoke us to deepen our understanding of the times we live in, confront the challenges we face, and bring some light into this world. For today's episode, we're going to focus on trying to understand anti-Semitism. We're going to look at the worldwide massive outpouring of anti-Semitism that has taken the Jewish world by shock, surprise, fear. And the truth is anti-Semitism as a topic is a fascinating topic. It's always been a paradox, if you think about it. When somebody tells you that they don't like a certain minority, they have something against black people, they have something against Asians, we call them racist. But when somebody dislikes Jews, it's called anti-Semitism. Why? Why is there a unique entry in the dictionary to describe somebody who doesn't like Jews? And the answer is because it's unique. It's unlike any other kind of hatred. It doesn't make any sense. People would often try and come up with excuses or reasons to try and explain anti-Semitism, right? The most basic one would be what sociologists call the dislike of the unlike. We don't like people who are different than us. So you would imagine then, of course, that in a place and in a time where Jews the most successfully managed to assimilate and become like their non-Jewish counterparts, they should be warmly accepted by society. That's Germany in the 1920s and 30s before Nazism. You have a time and a place where Jews were trying as hard as they could to fit into the world around them. The Reformed Jews declared Berlin is our Jerusalem, Germany is our fatherland, and then comes along Hitler and says, I don't care how non-Jewish you act or believe or dress or think. If you even have a grandparent who's Jewish, that's enough that you deserve to die. Then people will claim that maybe the reason for anti-Semitism is because we think that we're the chosen people. We think somehow that God chose us. We're not the only ones who think of ourselves as chosen. The Chinese chose to name their country China because the word means center of the universe. The name Japan means source of the sun. That red ball in the middle of their white flag is because they believe the sun starts rising over Japan because that's where the world begins. For Native Americans, the word human being and Indian are the same word, implying that every non-Indian belongs somehow to a subspecies. You don't see people trying to put Native Americans in gas chambers because of that. So then people will make the claim that anti-Semitism is a form of racism. It doesn't work because Judaism isn't a race. There are black Jews, there are brown Jews, there are white Jews, there are Filipino Jews, there are Yemenite Jews, Ethiopian Jews, Ashkenazic Jews, Syrian Jews. Jews comprise every race in the world. Not only that, anybody can convert and become Jewish. So you can't call it racism if anybody's allowed to join. It doesn't make sense to think of anti-Semitism as a form of racism. Jews, on the one hand, are hated for being a lazy and inferior group, but they're also accused of dominating the economy and taking over the world. In communist societies, we were oppressed for representing capitalism. 
in capitalist America in the early 20th century, we were accused of being communists. It reminds me of what we say every year at the Passover Seder. We sit with the family, we review the story of the exodus from Egypt, and we have that famous line, Bechol dor vador, omdim aleinu lachalotenu. In every generation, they rise up against us to destroy us. Today's form of that rising up against us to destroy us is not called anti-Semitism, it's called anti-Zionism. But let's unpack it a little bit. What's really the difference? Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, a blessed memory, former chief rabbi of England, he said throughout history, when people have sought to justify anti-Semitism, they have done so by recourse to the highest source of authority available within that culture. In the Middle Ages, it was religion. So there's religious persecution. In post-Enlightenment Europe, it was science. Today, it's human rights. It is why Israel, the only fully functioning democracy in the Middle East, with a free press and an independent judiciary, is regularly accused of the five crimes against human rights. Racism, apartheid, crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, and attempted genocide. This is the blood libel of our time. When I first decided to start a podcast, I thought, I'm going to have to find experts, scholars, people with really fascinating backgrounds, politicians, heads of organizations. And I came to realize, just by writing up a list, I have a lot of fascinating friends. (laughs) I've traveled the world. I've been around as a teacher for decades. I have met and become friends with many, many deeply interesting, thoughtful people who have some compelling and fascinating things to say about what's going on in our world. One of them is my friend, Ken Spiro. Rabbi Spiro is a senior lecturer and researcher for Asia Torah Jerusalem. He is a licensed tour guide from the Israeli Ministry of Tourism. Rabbi Spiro graduated from Vassar College with a BA in Russian language and literature. He did graduate studies at the Pushkin Institute in Moscow. He has a master's degree in history from the Vermont College of Norwich University, and he has rabbinical ordination. He's the author of World Perfect, Crash Course in Jewish History, his latest book, Destiny, Why a Tiny Nation Plays Such a Huge Role in History, published by Geffen Publishing. He served in a combat infantry unit in the IDF. He's the father of five children. He currently lives in Jerusalem. His writings and seminars can be accessed at his website, kenspiro.com, K-E-N-S-P-I-R-O.com. When I grew up, I heard stories from my father. My father grew up in the Ukraine, and he lived through the war, and he lived through anti-Semitism. And in the old days, he talked about his grandparents and the pogroms. And I always looked at anti-Semitism mainly as something that happened in many generations earlier. And occasionally, I have a skinhead somewhere that does something. I've never directly experienced it. I've never seen huge outbreaks of it. Um, so I guess my first question is, I'm wondering, is what the Jewish people are experiencing now, is this what it's always been like in the days of the pogroms and the crusades? Or is there something unique about what's going now that makes it fundamentally different than your normal uptick in anti-Semitism? So, I mean, like they say, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So for those of us who grew up post-Holocaust in the Western world, it was considered so uncool to to be anti-Semitic post-Holocaust because of the level of tragedy. So we really didn't get exposed to it. I mean, we may have suffered occasional remarks and Jew jokes and things like that, but to, to start to feel sort of what it's like to be Jewish in the Holocaust or in Eastern Europe uh, or in many periods of time in Jewish history, that is, I think, uniquely shocking for people of this generation. The sad part is that there are still a few Holocaust survivors, including some who were taken by Hamas, 
who actually are going through round two of this. So I think they're the ones who are really traumatized because they probably thought they would not ever have to go through that again. And I think, you know, many people felt that that's the kind of thing that could never happen again. It's ironic because if there's one thing the actual Holocaust showed us was the failure of enlightened Western civilization to truly create a better world. We just got from the most technologically, culturally, arguably governmentally sophisticated country in the world. Germany mechanized mass murder on a scale that's unprecedented in human history. But what what sets this apart is how it sort of kind of like so holistically is covering the whole Jewish world. Used to be uh, for Jews, you know, you'd have one country, would have an explosion of anti-Semitism, one region we get expelled from there, you know, 13th century England, 14th century France, 15th century Spain, but we got bounced from place to place to place. Now, because of the globalization of the world and technology, first of all, we are experiencing it live, immediate. It's overwhelming because you can go online and watch people all around the world singing, you know, like gas the Jews and from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. So the internet has enabled the world to like, it's sort of like pour gasoline on a small fire and explode everywhere. Normally these issues where people wouldn't even find out about them in most of the world and everyone knows about them immediately. It's certainly not as violent so far, please God, it shouldn't get there as we've seen before. But in many ways, it's really much scarier because this is the first time I think in history that, uh, we experiencing anti-Semitism globally. Unless you're living in like some island in the South Pacific, like Vanuatu, where they actually like Jews and always vote for us, and they don't have much internet connection, and you're living in la-la land, you don't get what's going on. But this is clearly something that is a different level than I think anything we've ever seen before. And the scary part is that there's a few countries that are holding the line and supporting Israel, and along with supporting Israel is also pushing back on the anti-Semitism, but I think as we're going to see that basically dissipate as the pressure, as we go on weeks and weeks and weeks of, you know, them announcing how many thousands of children were killed before it's a genocide. And we could find ourselves in a situation where we're literally globally, uh, it's us against the world, pretty much. It was that. That's really feels like that. Well, yeah, they, they, I think there's a feeling now of there's nowhere to run, there's nowhere to hide because wherever we are, and in, Israel is not the safe space people thought it would be. Um, even Israel itself, you know, we're in exile. Neighbors from the north, neighbors from the south are all moving into Jerusalem in the center because even within the country, there's a level of having to run away from enemies. And I guess it does build on this complex of it, it is kind of worldwide persecution. We're in trouble globally again, and it definitely heightens people's level of anxiety. What's interesting to me is there's two things I, that I took notice of. One is that immediately from the moment the attack happened, before Israel started mounting a response, before there was even a talk of an invasion, everybody assumed there's going to be something, but even before anything happened, all there was was the massacre. And you already had protesters defending Hamas. So I can, I could maybe if I bent over backwards, understand you know, it's disproportionate. There's so many Palestinian casualties. There's so many Palestinian deaths versus Israeli deaths. At least when there's a war, you can talk about who's morally right. But when it's completely one-sided and Hamas has done nothing but damage, you know, done nothing to respond or defend itself, and you're still protesting death to the Jews. Like, how do you even make sense of that? Yeah, you're actually onto a very, that's a very astute observation. And the, the, the best example is the Sydney Opera House. They go and light it up in blue and white. Uh, you know, to show support for and sympathy for Israel. 
And literally, way before Israel did anything in response, they're not only out there protesting at the exact same location, but they're they're immediately launching to gas the Jews. So you really, you know, I've been trying, I've been talking about this for years that anti-Semitism hides behind so many different excuses. You know, I always run through the list of the things we're accused of, of kidnapping Christian babies, using their blood to bake matzo, we poison wells, we're in league with the devil, we control the world's economy, the entertainment industry, you know, we control seismic activity, we hit Indonesia with a tidal wave, we send sharks to like destroy Egyptian tourism and ultras to spy in Saudi Arabia, Iran accused us of stealing their cloud cover, we have a space laser. I always say, if people believed even 10% of this, they would never mess with us. Would you mess with someone who controls <laughs> the world's economy and the, and the weather? I wouldn't touch these people. It, it really, it, what we really see how like paper thin is the, the, the pretext for hating us. And, and, and you really aren't just, I didn't even, when you <laughs> mentioned this, I didn't think of it that way, but that's really true. They were jumping right in before we did anything. This is just throwing more, you know, gasoline on the fire. But what's really, you're dealing with, you know, the, the, the tip of the spear of anti-Semitism today is not as much as some people on the very extreme left would like to say it's the Proud Boys and the neo-Nazis. These people are not threatened. It's the Islamo-fascists and they're, and they're, you know, I would say they're useful idiots. You know, people who just like jump on the intersectional bandwagon because they're dark skinned and pile on behind them and give them moral support. And uh, university campuses, but really the tip of the spear, because most of these guys are yelling, I'm telling these, these, you know, these white middle-class university students yelling from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. They can't even find Israel on a map. That's clearly true. But what's interesting is you're raising another point, which is that it, there's always the, the, the latent anti-Semites that are waiting for an excuse. So even dead Jews massacred, babies butchered, Holocaust victims kidnapped. It's enough to say, well, it's Israel's fault anyway, because Israel's the occupier. We, even if Israel does nothing, they're already the bad guy just by being there. Right, what's right. interesting is, aside from those, so aside from the, the latent anti-Semites and the that whole crowd, what you found fascinating is the left-wing liberals, which are ostensibly good-hearted people, you know, presidents of leading Ivy League institutions that are either saying nothing or they're openly supporting the Hamas side of the narrative. So it's just such a contradiction in my mind. I mean, if you're left-wing and you believe in peace and you believe in tolerance, how in the world, or at least be even handed and say there's two sides to the story, how do you have highly educated left-leaning academics that are not, in, they're not naturally anti-Semite? I wouldn't think. But there's something about what's going on in Israel that morphs into kind of anti-Semitism that's very hard to understand. Yeah. Well, I don't think they actually are. A lot of people really anti-Semitic in the classical sense of the world. I think a lot of, a huge percent of the Muslim screening are certainly are. I mean, you know, Islam has some very negative attitudes towards Jews. And you're quoting the Hadith that's in the Hamas charter talking about, you know, the, uh, the redemption won't come until, you know, Muslims make war against the Jews and kill them. And a tree in Iraq will say, oh, Muslim, there is a Jew behind me. Come and kill him. You know, this is, this it's, in, it's in the Hamas charter. Yeah, it's right in the house, but this is Islam can clearly contains within it the ability, especially when it's been hijacked by the most extreme, you know, radicalized form of it to, to be quite violent against Jews and historically doesn't have a lot of respect for us and views us as a people. They're supposed to be know our place and be subjugated. But, uh, what you're getting to, I think is really the issue of what has happened over literally the course of half a century plus and primarily amongst academia and which is the, the morphing the whole change away from 
particular, proud and particular about who we are, like America is a great country, to the intersectional combined. It's a whole package of sort of almost religious beliefs you have to buy into that are based on the fact that the original sin of the war, like white European and by extension American culture is guilty of horrible oppression, be it be slavery and all of persecuted people, whether they be people of color or because of their sexual preferences, the LBGTQ community, all fall into the category of persecuted people by the, by the patriarchy, the white patriarchy. And intersectionality kind of demands that they all be on the same side. But the weird part of this is Jews who are 0.2% of the world's personality are not viewed as a minority because most Jews look at, you know, most people look at Jews as white people. And then the distortion of history that is that Jews are like a religion, we're not a nation, we're, we're a vestigial remnant of European colonialism, basically stuck there by the British out of European guilt for the Holocaust, displacing the indigenous Palestinian population. So a lot of it comes from people who might be intelligent and in theory well-educated, but completely lacking in any real true historical perspective on the Middle East conflict combined with kind of the package deal that you have to buy into to be on an American university campus for sure. On the East Coast, it's like 30 to one, like liberal professors outnumbering conservative professors. So oh, yes, no- but the disparity that they don't understand is, I mean, look, the 25,000 Muslims were killed in Syria. You know, th- this idea that I get confused on this question. I honestly do. Should we be held to a higher moral standard or shouldn't we? We want to claim that we have a higher moral standard, that we brought morality into the world. So shouldn't we at the same time invite the world to judge us by a higher moral standard? So you first of all, you pointed out two really interesting things there. As part of intersectionality, one of the weird warped aspects of it is when people of color slaughter each other, it doesn't make a difference. You know, bigger, stronger, always wronger only works. Bigger, stronger, always wronger only works when it's people viewed as white colonialists. It's kind of the sad irony that they're not screaming about the Uyghurs in China or what Assad Hussein did to his, you know, Assad did to his own people in Syria. So that's just the blind stupidity of this nonsense that is really, it's not, it's, forget colorblind, it's color obsessed. Um, but you're onto something also, a very interesting point. And on one hand, it's completely unfair, it's hypocritical. You know, that the UN has passed more resolutions condemning Israel in the last half a century than every other country in the world combined. But even the most warped aspects of Jew hate, anti-Semitism, there's always an element of truth in them because even we Jews understand that, that, you know, the notion of chosenness, which begins with the story of Abraham, you know, he chose, what did he choose? He says, I choose you, God. I choose to dedicate my life and the life of my descendants to one unique mission to teaching the world about the reality of you and connecting the world to you and bringing the values and the morality that comes from you to the human race. So God says to Abraham back, you choose me, Abraham, I choose you back and your descendants. What do we view ourselves as chosen for as Jews? A unique responsibility, which by the way, is a job that we cannot shirk because if we don't do it, no one else will do it. So as the point being is as weird as anti-Semitism is unfair, it is the double standard, the ignoring whatever, all the other human rights disasters in the world, the hyper-focus on Israel, Israel being held, the IDF being held to a standard of, you know, no army in the world <laughs> behaves with the, with the amount of like caution and warning and humanity. He's dro- dropping leap wits to warn yeah, people. Not, not, um, but it really, on the deepest level, you're really onto something there. It's, it's like... It's the big guy upstairs saying, guys, you know, like that old Hebrew national commercial for that, that, you know, was the Uncle Sam standing under the scary sky and, and 
And the, the announcer says, you know, the United States Department of Agriculture allows you to add this many additives and preservatives and grizzle and fat to your hot dogs. And Uncle Sam is smiling. And, and then he looks up at the scary sky above and he does, he goes, you know, his head goes back and forth the note. Then the announcer says, Hebrew National, we have to answer to a higher authority. So, so as unfair as it is, this is really, it really is a message that we will not be allowed to be like anyone else, be it in our state or scattered around the world, because even subconsciously, often unfairly, hypocritically, we're being told that you Jewish people, you have to answer to a higher authority. I always say being Jewish might not be comfortable. It's always meaningful. And we're always going to be reminded one way or another that we cannot escape our mission in the world because if we don't get it done, the world is basically finished. So that makes it sound, and this might be true, it makes it sound like anti-Semitism in terms of like sort of God's hand in history. Anti-Semitism is a way of keeping Jews on track with the fact that they have a job to do in the world. Does that mean that to the degree that we don't do our job, that's when you're going to expect more anti-Semitism? And when we are doing our job, when we're really together, and we're pumping out a message of morality to the world, and we're taking care of each other, we're projecting a lot of love and goodness and holiness and morality. Is there a correlation that when we're acting well, things will be good for us? And it's when we start dropping off that when things get bad? Yeah, you can see that correlation. Well, we haven't, unfortunately, been able to test out too well the acting well thing. Because we go back to a couple of things I've noticed living in Israel for over 40 years is that all the major external threats or internal like intifadas in 87 and 2000, the Arab revolts within Israel, are, uh, they're always preceded by a tremendous internal strife within Israel, infighting amongst. That's why I think God put us where we were. If we lived in a nice peaceful place like between sandwiched between Italy, Austria, and, and you know, <laughs> Switzerland, we'd be killing each other. So when this happened now, all the, the country ripping itself apart over judicial reform, I was saying, we're going to get hit really bad. We are going to get hit really uh, bad. Look, we got, and it got much worse. We got a bucket of freezing cold ice water in our face. So on that level, absolutely, we see that. But the other thing we, I've noticed, Moshe, which is also super, supernatural and counterintuitive, is the reason why one group of people dislikes another if you want to classify anti-Semitism as just another form of racism, is because they're different. So you, when Jews chose to live in, amongst people and, and look, dress, and act very differently, one, that one could assume that would engender a certain level of hostility. But ironically, what we see is the greatest explosions of anti-Semitism have almost always taken place in places where we're most loyal and most like the people amongst whom we live, which is another danger for us. We might not be fighting amongst ourselves, but we're so losing our own identity that we're disappearing. And like I said, we cannot be allowed to disappear. So a place like Egypt 3,300 years ago or, or Spain before the expulsion or especially Germany before the Holocaust where Jews were all of six-tenths of 1% of the population of Germany, but no one was more German than German Jews. And if you had told a German Jew in 1930 that 10 years from now there's gonna be no Jews left in Germany because the country you so love is gonna slaughter you and everyone else, and every Jew around in every other country it would have been complete denial. But again, it's supernatural. But the problem with Jewish history is so much of it is supernatural. Which, what is weird for other people becomes normal for us. But you see by the infighting as a trigger for us being attacked and also by the assimilation as a trigger for us being attacked. And there's got to be an algorithm in there. We reach a certain point of about to disappear and then boom, we get it from where we least expect it. Way. It seems to me it's really clear in both those examples that yes, if we do the opposite, you know, if we are proud Jews, not arrogant, not, no, we're, not, we're not supposed to conquer and convert people, but we are unified people and doing what we're supposed to be doing, which is living and acting in a way that inspires other people and doing it together and not looking at what separates us, but rather what we have in common. 
as a unique nation with a unique mission, I, I'm pretty sure you'd see the, a very big change uh, in the world's attitude towards the Jewish people. Well, I mean, what you're saying about Jews in Germany in the 30s, if it's that, that kind of awakening is happening now, I think, among more liberal Jews in America that have always, had always been aligned with left-wing causes and fighting for the homeless, fighting for the minorities' rights and marking, mar- marching with Martin Luther King and all that stuff. And they were part and parcel of the left. They, in a lot of ways, they were the leaders of the left. And now all of a sudden, their, their compatriots, their colleagues are turning on them and becoming pro-Hamas. All of a sudden, they're saying, oh my gosh, they really just don't get it. How could they be pro-Hamas? And uh, what I'm seeing on some level is a lot of those Jews that until now were not uh, aligned with anything Jewish, all of a sudden they're finding themselves pro-Israel and different than their neighbors who are not so pro-Israel or who are very openly very anti-Israel. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm not interacting so much with those people, but I can see from how people are talking on the internet and and you know, like the Columbia University professor who's an Israeli who was like ranting about the university. Yeah. He's a guy who's clearly quite liberal and is quite outraged because at some point, unless you're totally lost in La La Land, you realize how incredibly off and evil. There's one thing to be a social justice warrior for a perceived to be a good cause, but it's another thing when it morphs into this kind of toxic, holistic attack on all the Jews in the world, regardless of what you believe. So I think the more connected a Jew is with Judaism, the less surprised we are about this. Not because we think we're standing out, but because we understand on a deeper level what's going on. I think this is an even bigger, a bigger bucket of ice water in the face of a lot of progressive liberal Jews who are, you know, why can't we just all get along and, and, we've, and, and we're really on the same page. But it comes from also a really almost a combination of ignorance and arrogance about what other people believe. The whole fact that you have a red-green alliance, you know, you have the most left-wing part of America. Black Lives Matter, LGBTQ, you know, feminists, all these left-wing causes that are all about, and you're dealing with the, the, the red side of the alliance, which is radical Islam. The, the, the left side is all about inclusivity, 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 or being open to everything. They don't realize they're dealing with the most particularist people on planet Earth. These people really believe as part of an, and what people do not understand is that mainstream Islamic worldview is a very expansionist and aggressive worldview. They believe that, you know, the Jews got it wrong. The Christians got it wrong. Muhammad came along. He's the seal of the prophets. They got it right. The whole world is destined to become Dadal Islam, one giant Islamic world until that time be divided into the world of the sword and the world of the Islam. And, and through the idea of jihad, you're meant to physically, by the way, Islam is more into physical conquest than spiritual conquest of the world. They rather subjugate you know, those, these people and get and tax them, then convert them to Islam. But this is the way I think. I think but I think part of the question is, I, I mean, there's no question that's becoming a rising ideology in, in, the, in the world of, of Islam. The question is, is there a moderate Muslim view? And even if there is, what, is, it, is it 50%? Is it 80%? Is it 20%? And regardless of the numbers, it's just so scary for a moderate Muslim to speak up today and say anything other than death to the Jews. But then it becomes a death to the moderate Muslims as well, and they have a hard time speaking up. Exactly. I mean, the way I say it, I'm sure I could, I can get more hate mail for this. There's no such thing as moderate Islam. There's moderate Muslims. Christianity went through a lot of moderating force from a very dark, horrible, like backward kind of medieval Christianity to what it is today, much more moderate. The ability of the Catholic Church to have diplomatic relations with Israel, showing that they even their theology has changed from viewing the Jews as a rejected people, cursed to wander the earth. Islam was more enlightened a thousand years ago than it is today. Um, and, 
And the people out in the street screaming are the loudmouth. You know, we always know the loudest, the loudmouth people, the ones who yell are not necessarily the majority. Those are the ones you see. Those are the ones posting online. Right. Make I've seen multiple moderate Muslims posting any number of things, including one guy who was great from Yemen saying, where were you when Assad was killing? Where were you when the Houthi, when there were cookies in, in Yemen? Where were, there's like hundreds of thousands, millions of Muslims being killed and displaced by other Muslims and no one seems to care. But when the Jews get involved, it's the top toxic combination of anti-Semitism, Islamic ideas to Judaism, intersectionality, all comes together in a perfect storm. So, and the reality is, is right, it's dangerous. There are certain Muslims who are, you know, like Ayan Hirsi Ali and Irshad Manji. There are people who do speak up and they're very brave, but they live a life of a lot of danger. You know, the son of Hamas, that guy. Son he's of Hamas, right. It's on the war path. He was so angry about, but you know, Hamas and how horrible they are. And there's plenty of people, I've even seen a few videos smuggled out of Gaza, of people screaming, Hamas, you dogs at funerals, you've killed us. Right, right. You know, but these people, you know, the moderate they force. Set up. Yeah, they need to start speaking out. But right now they're not in a position to do that because everyone's on fire. It actually leads to another question, which is interesting that if you look at, you know, there's a concept in Judaism of there's, we go through four exiles, <clears throat> Babylonian, Roman, we've got the Greek exile. Those exiles were always with nations that were antithetical to everything we stood for. They were idol worshipers. And then we had Nazism, which was also completely antithetical to Judaism. They had no belief in a God at all. What we're facing now and what we faced through all the Christian crusades was dealing with people who tried to kill us who are very close to us ideologically in some way. There's monotheism, there's a shared belief in Abraham, there's a shared vision of a, of a, of a world that's universally good. And so it, it, I, I'm wondering what the difference is between how we look at our enemies being the Nazis or the Romans or the Babylonians versus our enemies being Muslims who are our cousins. How, 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 how should that, yeah. how do we engage with it differently? So, I mean, I want to, the way I like to put it is like it's two steps forward, one step back. We weaned the world off of amoral polytheism, but now they say you're right, but we replaced you. But you're getting to a deeper issue that I've, I've thought a lot about. It's one thing to pay lip service to God. It's another thing to take God seriously. And, uh, you know, the first book I wrote, World Perfect, was about the impact of monotheism and morality. I did a lot of research on Islam and Christianity dealing with that specific question. And it became very clear to me, and it's very clear to me today, that just because you say you are monotheistic and you espouse certain philosophical, theological points doesn't mean you're going to behave in the proper way because it's not just about, Judaism is unique and we have an idea of belief, but you also have action. And, and the, you know, if you look at Christianity up until relatively modern times, they had our Bible in their Bible, but not only did they not take their Bible seriously, they actually banned our Bible. The Catholic Church maintained for centuries a list of index, index of books you were not allowed to read. Not that anyone right. could read in medieval Europe except a bunch of priests, but one of them was the Bible because anyone reading the Bible and seeing what the Bible demanded, and there's very little new in the New Testament that isn't talked about in the Old Testament. It's all there. It's just restating the same basic moral ethical points would see the disconnect between the way the church was actually behaving and, and, and what the Bible was saying. So with the reintroduction of the Bible into the, into the world with the printing press, you know, 500 years ago and the Protestant Reformation, fast forward 500 years later, and we now have a group of Christians who are very Bible-based. And we're talking about the Hebrew Bible. And interestingly enough, they happen to be, in my opinion, the most moral straight people that I know in this world. And they're the most pro-Israel because they actually said, okay, we got the nice idea, but now we got the book that goes with it. Islam does not, by the way, the Quran is not the Bible. It doesn't contain that at all. So what I believe what Islam is truly lacking, albeit that their, their idea of God is actually closer to the Jewish idea than the Christian idea of, of Trinity, 
Um, but what they completely are lacking in is the moral, ethical, powerful, transformative statements that are right there. You know, the Liberty Bell of the United States, it says, proclaim liberty throughout the land and to all the inhabitants thereof. You know, it's like, it's no modern liberal democracy, and I have a whole presentation on this, uh, is so based on the principles that are taken from the Bible and much of the influence that we have had transforming the world because we've been stateless and under the thumb of so many other people has been indirect influence. And a huge amount of it has come through uh, our surviving long enough for the world to pick up our book and spread it around and take the basic concepts, which are the basic moral principles of liberal democracy. So the, so, and you see, by the way, it's the same thing you could say about liberal democracy, which is so based on principles from Judaism to the extent that people connect that back to the Bible and God as the source of those values. Like it says in the Declaration of Independence of the United States, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They're endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights amongst them, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness to the extent that would be it a religious ideology, like modern Christianity, much of which is reconnected to the Bible or the or democracy in its inception, which was largely formed by people in the early modern period who were obsessed with the Hebrew Bible as a political constitution, literally. It's such an amazingly interesting talk that most people aren't aware of. How many people like it, Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, you know, Locke, Selden, Hugo Grotius, I'm talking about 16th, 17th century, we're basically looking, if we're going to remake the world and with new values, why remake the wheel, you know, reinvent the wheel? If God is perfect, the system of government he gave the ancient Hebrews has, is the ideal form of government. So the reality is to answer the question in short, these people might now say, yeah, we believe in one God, but if you don't have the, it, it's like empty phrases. It's like hollow words, unless you have the guidebook that comes with it. Now, Christians don't have the oral law. So whatever they're doing is based on, we Jews don't practice Judaism and Jewish law based on statements made in the Bible, like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Doesn't mean in Jewish law, you poke out someone's eye for poking out yours, but they at least absorbed these principles, especially from like the book of Isaiah about, you know, righteousness and justice. And I mean, universal peace. Well, call the prophets. He's screaming the notion of righteousness, justice, fairness, caring. Last question for you, Ken. And thank you very much. I really appreciate the time. Um, my last question is, what, if you had to give a send-off, in other words, Jews in the world today are feeling um, scared, intimidated. I'll even go so far as to say my, my wife has a friend, a doctor in Ottawa, who she's been in touch with. You know, he's known her for many years. And he said, he wrote to her, sent her an email last week and said, I know we're not there yet, but if the time comes where your family in Canada needs a place to hide, my home is always welcome. And I'm like, Wow. Wow. And, and the truth is, it's for sure in the back of many people's minds. Like, if this is going to morph, God forbid, into another Holocaust scenario, we have to have a place to run. So I'm not asking the practical question of, okay, is Australia safe? Is Mexico safe? Where do we run? I'm asking the question, I guess on a more moral, spiritual level, what should Jews be doing when they see their neighbors all of a sudden, you know, they scratch the surface, you realize your neighbors really don't care about Innocent Israelis massacred and raped by Hamas. How are Jews supposed to relate to that? How are they supposed to feel about the rising anti-Semitism? What should well, they do about it? I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that it it will wake Jews up to get get them to look. I don't think most of them will. They'll just think this is some form of just another form of hatred in the world, which is kind of weird because we generally look kind of like the people amongst whom we live in the world today. It's not like we're like black people living in a white society, but I'm hoping that people will wake up and start, I mean, I see people really open to this question of what are we doing that makes us so hated? The, the, but the real, the real switch is going to have to come when people rec really start to recognize 
that it's not about Israel. It's not normal. Like when, you know, the Ukraine is doing something against Russia, you don't see people in other part of the world beating up different Eastern Europeans being beat. You don't have mobs attacking Russians in in Brooklyn. You know, like it's not happening. So, but people need to like kind of stand back and and ask the question, like, what is really going on here? I'm hoping that the silver lining, every dark cloud of Jewish history has a silver lining. But um, this is, I think, a powerful wake-up call that Jews can realize that, again, Western civilization is failing. They're coming after me. Like, it's the whole experience of experiencing something like watching 9-11, the Twin Towers come down. If something that doesn't seem possible is actually now actually happening before my eyes. So the question is, what will people do with it? Will they run and hide in their neighbor's house? Or will it bring out with them an interest and a desire to basically find out what is it about us that is so threatening to the world at 0.2% of the world's population, a teeny country the size of New Jersey? Why is the world more obsessed on us than anything else? And I'm hoping that will lead to a realization that, first of all, we all about, we're all, and it's not just the lost, disconnected Jews, but the religious Jews also were, tend to be kind of self-ghettoized and isolationist in many ways, that we're all in the same boat together. And we have this unique responsibility to find out what it is that, that, we should be doing because ultimately what all anti-Semitism is about, as Rabbi Chaim of Volozhin said 200 years ago, the great rabbi, he says, when Jews don't make Kiddush, Gentiles make Havdalah. You know, rather than just look, where can I escape to next? So we continue the endless cycle of Jews being bounced from one place to another. The difference between now and anywhere else is there is no other place to escape to. I've been saying this as a, as a rabbi historian, Israel bashing is the final form of an, that anti-Semitism is taking. And the challenge to all Jews is to push aside what they might think about anti-Semitism and really understand what is really driving it, which is this, we've been dragging the world, kicking and screaming towards a vision of values based on a relationship with one God. And anti-Semitism, regardless of what excuse it hides behind, is, is some, on some way even subliminally and subconsciously a revolt against that. So the lesson that all Jews need to learn is until we come together as a people and, and, and really become Jews for Judaism and become educated and unified and, and, and teach the world values, which is the ultimate tikkun olam there is in the world. It's much better than save the whales. Um, they're not going to leave us alone. How many people are going to get that message? I don't know, but that's the message that we have to get because right now no one's feeling real safe. I'm going back to Israel tonight. I'm in South Africa. Um, and, and I always say, by the way, that the safest place to be as a Jew is always Israel. I believe that hundred percent, but we're, there's an ex- tremendous existential external threats. But what I don't feel in Israel is the unease that I see people around the world feeling and living in liberal democratic countries where suddenly they're being warned, don't show up in the street looking Jewish or university right, students right. barricade themselves like Fairleigh Dickinson University in a library because the Muslims are in the, smashing on the door to get the Jews. So right. uh, yeah, it's a big way to pull for all of us. Israel, Diane. So you, you would say if they're going to hate us, we have to realize they hate us because of what we actually stand for, which is Jewish values. And they're going to hate me for my Jewish values. I should at least know what it is they hate me for and embrace it and stand for it because they're going to hate me even if I try to run away from it and try and ignore it. Right. There, re- there really must be something there. People don't... Get Hamas, is not say- Hamas is not saying we hate Jews because they're being too religious. And Hitler didn't say it either. And it's not that we hate the Jews who live Jewish values. We hate you regardless because the very fact that you're Jewish means you're part of that system and you're a danger to all the evil that they're trying to conquer the world with. Exactly. And they're, they're, they're giving off the worst, most toxic form of, of impure kind of monotheistic worldview that's very negative. And the Maimonides himself, a thousand years ago, writing to the Jews of Yemen, he said, don't let this freak you out, guys, and scare you. I'm paraphrasing him, obviously. He said, don't let their strength scare you. He said, this is all a test. So you could demonstrate your, your holiness and your connection to God. Meaning you guys, you do it right. He's telling the Jews of Yemen, you do it right. 
that's a common belief in Judaism, you know, that Islam, uh, you know, in, in the end of days, the Muslims will line up in back of us. When we get to do it right, they'll, they will stop fighting against us and they'll line up in back of us. It's the whole world. That's what the messianic redemption is all about. The whole world lines up right, behind right. the Jews and say, you guys got it right. Show us how to do it. You got to always be for something in this world. Being against is a very negative marketing strategy. I always have Coca-Cola's motto was, doesn't taste as bad as Pepsi. No one would buy it. <laughs> so I'm saying Jews for Judaism. It's a winning combination. Thank you, Ken. It's always interesting to speak to you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. Please like, subscribe, and also leave feedback if you liked the content, and especially if you didn't. These are important conversations, so let's keep schmoozing. <laughs>